So tonight, let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings 14. You know, as we go through the book of Kings, uh, you've heard me say this, I think this will be the third time that I've mentioned this, but I, I really uh, mean this, because as we go through the book of Kings, we, we, we see very similar things that we saw in Judges, meaning where the, where the nation is doing well, and then, or maybe they're not doing so well, and they cry out to God, God raises up a deliverer for them, and then they do well, and then they forget about God. Have you ever noticed that refrain in, in, in life as human beings? It's only when we cry out to God that we're, we get really religious. You know, people get really religious when they find out they're in a mess, and then all of a sudden, God becomes part of the vocabulary. Uh, all of a sudden, just out of the blue, he comes, he shows up, and, and now you're like, oh God, if you will just help me, I'll do anything, you know, if you, if you do this, God, then I'll, you know, if you, if you bring my wife back to me, you know, Lord, I'll give you my life, I'll give you, I'll give you my Porsche 911, all three of them, Lord, in the different colors, and I'll give everything to you, and God's going, okay, I've heard this before. And then he does something, he brings deliverance, he brings the thing that you're hoping for. And then it's not long after that, we start going downhill again. We start relying on our flesh, start falling into our sin habits, whatever it may be. And just like in Judges, that was the way it was. It was like a roller coaster. Same thing here in the book of Kings. And it's really depressing, actually. Uh, even though there's a lot for us to learn in uh, Kings, First and Second Kings, there's a lot for us to learn about ourselves because there's something that's true about man, and that is we are all the same. God has fashioned our hearts alike. In other words, we all have this propensity. We want the same things. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants to be respected. Everybody wants to be taken care of. And these are just normal things that are just part of us being in the flesh, you know? And... Um, but, you know, uh, we're also the same in that we are sinners, every one of us. And aren't you glad you came to hear that tonight? But uh, I'm one of them, and I'm so glad that God has saved me, and I'm so glad that he's touched your life. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting in these seats tonight on a Thursday night when it's cold and dark and there's ice on the road. You know, what brings you here? The word of God brings you here. Jesus has brought you here. And where else would we be? I mean, think of it. Where would else would we be before we came to Christ? We would, none of us would be here. We'd be following our own pursuits. But Christ has united us and brought us together. And he is the unifier. He's the one who unifies us, the body of Christ, worldwide. You can go anywhere in the world and you can be unified with the body of Christ because you, have, you serve the same God. The same spirit that dwells in people in Manila in the Philippines is the same spirit of God that's dwelling in our hearts. And we can fly over there, we can charter a plane and fly over to Manila and land and get out and go to a church and find believers and we just sink right in with them. We may not know their language, they may sing different songs, but the heart is the same. And so we're all the same. And, and as we look at these men and these, uh, a few women, as we look at these men and the kings, we see that they're really no different than us in the flesh. And only those who rise above the crust 
of normal humanity, uh, and, and they give their hearts to God, or they trust in Jehovah God. You, they rise above all of the all of the all the other stuff, and they live lives that are supernatural. And God does really wonderful things in their lives. And and tonight, as we look at chapter fourteen, we're going to see that God is a God of grace. Again, God just showing off His grace in the lives of these men, ungodly men. And God showing his grace over and over again. Never think that the Old Testament is just a different God. I've heard Christians say that, that the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is just an angry God in the, in the heavens, just with a hammer, just waiting for somebody to mess up. He just, he's got this itchy Thing. And he's got, he just wants to smash something. That, that's the view that some people have of God, that he just, he just wants to ruin your fun. He wants to destroy you because you're just not like him. But the, that couldn't be further from the truth. That's man's ugly heart. That, that's superimposing our Im, imperfect, our imperfection upon him. And even when he is angry, his anger is perfect, and his anger is measured, and it's not out of control. He is always in control. Even when he's angry, remember when Jesus went into the temple to cleanse the temple? Twice he did it. Once at the beginning of his ministry in John's gospel, and then at the end of his ministry, he did the same thing again. Was he freaking out and out of control? No, he was very much in control, and nobody got hurt. Read the passage again and, and, and find out, did, did he whip anybody with cords, even though he used them to get their attention? Does the Bible say that he chased out a bunch of Jews and lashed them with a cat of nine tails? No, it doesn't say that. Perfect control. Perfect control. So let's read um, this 14th chapter. And let's just read down to, uh, well, down to just verse 22 really quickly. Just to get the context, because if I start off, uh, it won't make um, as much sense as if we read through it once. So notice, in the second year of Joash, the son of Jehoiahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother name, mother's name was Jehoiadon of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin." And he killed 10,000 Edomites in the valley of salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jokphiel to this day. And then Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, Come, let us face one another in battle. And Jehoash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thistle said, or the thistle that was in Lebanon, excuse me, sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to me 
uh, to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay home. For why should you meddle with trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? But Amaziah would not heed. Therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. And so he and uh, Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. And then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh, and went to Jerusalem and broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. And he took all the gold and all the silver and all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord and in the treasury, treasuries of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now the Rex rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did, his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. And Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there, and then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built, he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. So an interesting passage and uh, very uh, common uh, sort of beginnings. Uh, the Lord admonishing the king for the things that he did right and, um, and, and not... Uh, and then... Uh, not commending him for the things that he did wrong. Let's go back to verse uh, 1 now in uh, chapter 14. So the second year of Jehoash, uh, the son of Jehoiahaz, the king of Israel, this was the king of Israel who reigned from 798 B.C. to 782 B.C. And Amaziah, for those of you who take notes, he reigned from 796 B.C. to 767 B.C. And notice he was 25 years old when he became king and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jehoadan of Jerusalem. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as his father Joash had done. Now when you see this uh, phrase, his father you remember that David predated uh, these men by a couple hundred years, right? And so um, when it says his father, this word, you'll see it in, uh, all throughout the Bible in the Old Testament. And it speaks about his ancestors. Obviously, David is an ancestor of, of, um, of the king that we're talking about, right? Amaziah. He's, a, he's a, an ancestor of his. But then his immediate father was Joash, right? And so, um, and it's interesting that it's referring to 
the progenitor of the dynasty and speaking of his ancestor, uh, not literally his father. So um, just like his father, Amaziah, started off well, but he didn't finish well. And you remember uh, last week we, we talked about that and starting well, but not finishing well. And God would have us to start well and, and to continue being fruitful throughout our life. You know, um, it's important to do that, not just to begin and then end horribly. I mean, we see that even in the life of Solomon. You know, he started off really well, and as he went on, his, you know, he did what was against the word of God, and he amassed wives to himself. He had over a thousand wives, seven hundred wives, three hundred concubines, and they ruined him. They they really led him. Uh, into idolatry because he would marry these women from all these different places and countries around him making these alliances with all these people around but those women were serving ungodly um, idols and 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 they basically i'm sure you know had the big crocodile tears you know you served jehovah but what about my god molech Right, and so, and so, I'm sure he's hearing this over and over. He's like, "Okay, I'll build you a temple to Molech," you know. And then one thing leads to another, and pretty soon they lead him away from God. They lead him away. But we always have to be careful about how we live, right? Because we know that others are watching, whether we like it or not. As fathers, as grandfathers, as some of you are, we ought to be the best example you know, to those kids and grandkids so that they will have the best chance, the very best chance in this wicked culture and wicked world that we live in to walk with the Lord and enjoy the blessings of obedience. And and that's so important. You know, Ephesians, Paul says, see then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Walking circumspectly is walking in such a way where you're aware of what's going on around you. You understand that you are in a fishbowl and that people are looking at you because you're the believer. You're the one who claims to believe in Christ. And so they are looking at your lives. And it's important how we respond to everything as they see, as they look at us. Because we're not perfect. But you know, when we go through troubles, where do we go? How do we respond? You know, Because they go through the same things. But there ought to be a difference in the life of an unbeliever, how they respond and the things that they say and do versus the same thing happening to a believer, how we respond and the things that we say and do, there ought to be a marked difference. And they deserve to see a difference. And although we cannot guarantee what the next generation will do, we can't, but it's our mandate to walk the walk that they might follow us. And unfortunately, Amaziah didn't really improve over what his father had done either. He walked in the same path, and he didn't seek to go higher. He only went where his father went. He, he, didn't, he didn't excel above that. And see, th- that's the sad thing about the church is that, you know, you know, young person, you know, if you're listening or you hear this later on or some of you in the room, you know, don't settle for where your parents are at, especially if they don't know Christ. Seek to go way high above and hopefully bring them up to you. Don't think that just because they're their father or your mother that you, you, certainly you respect them, but you fly high with Christ and then you bring them up. Don't allow them to keep you down. And, and, and that's kind of 
what can happen if we're not careful. We need to rise above. We need to rise above. Notice in verse 4, back in our text, it says, this Amaziah, he didn't remove the high places. He didn't take them away. And the people still sacrificed and they burnt incense on these high places. And this was true of Amaziah earlier in chapter 12 and 13. He did the same thing. He didn't take away the high places. There was one place that they were to worship God. And where was that? What city were they split? Yes, Jerusalem. Back in Deuteronomy, God says, I will place my name there. And when I do, that's the place that I want to be worshipped. And by the way, this is how I ought to be worshipped. Don't make it up and just, you know, don't be like Nadab and Abihu. They just kind of got bored of doing the same thing over and over again. God's like, well, you know what? Just Just do what I told you to do. It's not supposed to be your entertainment. Worship is not entertainment. You worship God according to what he says, how he ought to be worshiped. We don't get bored in it and try to make things up and decide, you know, I just, I'm getting so tired of this offering, the same offering, you know, the trespass offering, you know, the, the free will offering. We need something. We need some spice. Let's take one of those flares. Set it down next to the thing and let the flame, you know, the flame, the red hot sparks and, you know, and and that's where their heart was. I'm not content just doing what God wants. I want, what's in it for me? And God's like, well, it's not about you. And see, that's the wonderful thing about worship is when it's not, when we totally understand and get it, it's not about us. And that's why, be very careful, and I'm going off on a rabbit trail, but bear with me. When you go to a church and all you see is the worship team, or you go to some place and the band is hot and the lights are happening, and man, you're just like, wow, it's like a concert. And then you come back because you want that thriller, you want that concert feel. Is that worship? Now, maybe it is. I mean, because the hearts of the people up on that platform, you don't know their hearts. But sometimes it can be so over the top that it's obviously the flesh. Is it about us, how we feel about worship, or is it about him? Is it about Christ? So many people go to church because of the hot worship team. Or they go to church because of the fancy preacher, or whoever he is, the way, you know, his persona, his personality. And every person has a personality. You can't deny it. I've got a personality, whether you like it or not. I've got my own, the way I'm, I'm me. And there's no, you know, and other people are different. But we got to see beyond all that stuff, and we got to think, Lord, this is about you. All of this, everything, even reading tonight is about him, because we, we're basically listening to what God has spoken to us. We're learning a great deal about history, but we're also learning a lot about ourselves and, and how God relates to people in these conditions. And, and it's a book of redemption. It's a book of grace. And we're going to see that tonight. So verse 5, it says that it happened... As soon as the king, as Ahaziah was established in his, uh, in his, uh, in his hand, uh, the, the kingdom was established in his hand, that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. And remember back in chapter 12 of this book, and also in Second Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20, it says that Joash had murdered Zechariah. Remember Zechariah? He was the, the high priest who became high priest because his, um, his father um, 
you know, had, had died, and now Zechariah becomes the high priest, and, and, uh, and Joash murders Zechariah after all that Jehoiada, his father, had done for him. And you can listen to the last couple of weeks to, to kind of get that. But Joash had slipped into idolatry, and Zechariah warned Joash of, of Judah, warned him what he, about what he was doing. So Joash killed him, even though Zechariah's father, again, Jehoiada, was so gracious to him and restored the kingdom to him from Athaliah, who was going to murder him had it not been for Jehoiada. So you know, Joash uh, owed a lot to this older man in the faith, Jehoiada, the, the high priest. And then when Jehoiada died, the real true colors of the king came out. And, and then when his son assumed that position, he killed him because he didn't like what he was saying. Now, in, in Second Chronicles... Uh, chapter 24, beginning in verse 25. Let me just read it to you. You can write that off in the margin of your Bible. Second Chronicles 24, verse 25 through 26. It says, And when they had withdrawn from him, for they had left him severely wounded, his own servants, and this is what it was, uh, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada the priest and killed him on his bed. So, the, the, and so he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. And these are the ones who conspired against him, Zabad, the son of Shemaeth, and the Ammonites, and Jehozabad, the son of Shimrith, the Moabitess. So these two men, these servants of jo, uh, Joash, murdered him because of how he killed Zechariah, the high priest, even after all that his father had done for him. Very ungrateful young man. But verse 6 says, But the children of the murderers, notice, so um, now these, uh, these people who murdered his, his father, he has them murdered. So the children of the murderers, he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law. But he murdered them, but he didn't murder the, the children. Because it's written in the book of the law of Moses in which the Lord commanded, saying, Fathers shall not put to, be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. But a person shall be put to death for his own sin. And we've seen this in the past with Yehu, king of Israel, because that's what he did. God had told him to wipe out the, the line of Ahab, uh, uh, certain individuals of Ahab, but he took it a step further and, and killed all the acquaintances even of uh, um, Yehu as well, or of, uh, of Ahab and um, Ahaziah. These kings, these names get a little confusing after a while. And so um, also in Ezekiel, it tells us in chapter 18, verse 20, it says, the soul who sins shall die. Doesn't that confirm with what the Bible tells us, that the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ? So back in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 20, or 18, excuse me, verse 20, the soul who sins shall die, and the son who shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And thank God for whatever conviction that Amaziah had. He, wasn't, he was at least following the law, and he was listening to what the law of Moses said. And, and back in this time... You know, um, uh, th these things happen. When a king, uh, something happened, 
uh, to his father. And, you know, he would not only wipe out the people who killed his father, but he would go after the entire family and just wipe them out. And that was very typical in the Orient, or, or in the, not the Orient, but the, um, in the Middle East back at this time period. But at least he had enough scruples to not do that. And, you know, kudos for him, because he started off, again, well, just like his father did. But we're going to see that he's not going to end well. And see, it's always good to be obedient to the Lord. I would encourage you to read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, because God lists the the blessings and the cursings of the children of Israel, telling them way in advance, before they even crossed over to go into the promised land, he told them... This is how you will be blessed, and this is how you will be cursed. And it's all based upon actions that we do. And being obedient to God. And that's all we got to do is be obedient to him, and we will be blessed. Because there are consequences for sin, and there's also consequences for obedience. There's blessings in obedience. And it may not feel always like a blessing, and sometimes... Doing the right thing is harder to do than doing the wrong thing. Doing the wrong thing is something we do very naturally because it's, it's part of our old nature. It's easy to do the wrong thing. You, you wake up and you just fall into it. You step in it every day. You just, you just kind of walk and, you, and it's easy to do the wrong thing. But to do the right thing, to walk in obedience is going to take some thought. It's gonna be, you're going to have to be circumspect. You're going to have to be watching what you're doing how you're being manipulated, the things that are around you. you got to really have your head on straight, and that's why you have to pray in the morning. Lord, help me today. I need your help before I step out of this house, before I step out of this bed, Lord. Would you please help me and give me eyes to see way beyond the natural things. Help me to see what's lurking in the shadows. Even though I may not see it, I can see the 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 manifestation of it. I, I see jealousy in this person and this, and then the next thing you know, and how do I combat that? And how do I love this person in spite of those things? See, it's, it's, it's so important that we live in obedience and it's never easy, obedience. Very rarely is it easy. That's why so few people do it. They go by the path of least resistance. The path of least resistance. I live by that rule most of my life. I never stood up to anything that was morally right. I would always just cave in. I don't know, have you felt the same thing? Have you ever ever experienced that? Most of us have. But notice in verse 7 in our text, he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. In the Valley of Salt. This is down there by the Dead Sea. Something really unique about that area. And it says, uh, and he took Selah by war and called its name Jachthiel to this day. Selah literally means the rock. And this is the rock city of Petra in modern day Jordan. And uh, Amaziah renamed it Jachthiel, which means the blessedness of God. And so this interesting place, and um, Petra is the place that we believe that yet in the future to us, in the tribulation period of time, that period of time after the church is removed, Petra is the place we believe that the 144,000 Jews sealed during the tribulation, during the great tribulation, that they will be protected in this place called Petra when the Antichrist comes to, and seeks to destroy them. And in this place... 
Um, I haven't been there. I, I, I would love to go there someday, but I know people who have. And inside, it's a rock city. It's literally a mountain, and, and they carve these uh, uh, buildings out of rock. And, and they go way back, and there's tunnels and all kinds of caverns and stuff like that. And, and I've been told that people believing in the Word of God have placed scriptures all over inside there so that when the Jews finally get there in the Great Tribulation period, they're going to have the Word of God hid in there for them so they can read it while they are hiding from the man of sin, the beast, the Antichrist, whatever you want to call him, fang face, whatever, I don't know, whatever you want to call him. He's probably going to be a good looking guy. And he's probably going to be very well-spoken. He's probably going to know many languages. He's probably going to have the right suit. You know what I'm talking about. He's going to, be, he's going to drive the nice car. He's going to be very, very liquid, you know, just speak to anybody, you know. Just, and people are like, wow, he's just so smooth. Smooth operator, you know. He's just one of these guys. But the Bible tells us that in Revelation 12, verse 6, says the woman, speaking of Israel, and those representing Israel at that time. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there. And not only the the scripture, but they'll have supplies hidden away for them. And they should feed her there 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Right about the midpoint of the tribulation. They're going to flee to Petra and they're going to be prepared. In Revelation 12, again, in verse 13, it says, Now when the dragon, speaking of Satan, saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman who was spoken of as Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might flee into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. A time is one year. A times is two years because it's plural. And then a half a time is another half year. One year, two year, and a half. Three and a half years, 1,260 days, however you want to call it. It tells us right there very clearly we're dealing with 30-day months. (laughs) And so he tells us this. But the Edomites um, who Amaziah attacked were the descendants, remember, of Isaac. And thus they were ancestors of Judah and Amaziah and King David. Remember in Genesis that uh, Isaac and Rebekah had uh, two sons, uh, and, and the Lord said to Rebekah, there's two nations in your womb. This is uh, Genesis 25, verse 23. There's two, and so this is the place that, that he's going up against. And, and the reason I'm bringing this up is to show the connection. They're really fighting each other. Brothers are fighting against their own kind, their own tribes, if you will, because they all came from Isaac, Jacob and Esau, we'll see that. So two nations are in your womb, the Lord says to her, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. Who are those twins in Rebekah's womb? Jacob and Esau, (laughs) right? And then it tells us that afterward, it says that... um, and the first one came out when she gave birth, and he was red, and he was hairy all over, like a garment. And so they called his name Esau, which means red. And afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, which means heel catcher or dirty, sneaky thief. 
heel catcher because of what he did when he was just an infant. He didn't, didn't even know anything. And so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when he, when he bore them. And it tells us in Genesis 36 that now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. So Esau is the same as Edom. So the people who came as a result of Esau, his descendants were the Edomites, right? And so now in verse 7 uh, that we just read here, you know, all it tells us is that there was this war. You know, all we have in Second in, in Kings here is verse 7. He killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt, took Selah, changed its name, end of story. But in, in Second Chronicles, uh, I'd like to read that. So turn, with there, uh, turn there with me, if you would, Second Chronicles 25, because this is, a, uh, this is more commentary, if you will, on what happened here. Second Chronicles 25. Because what one verse told us in Second Kings here, verse 7, now you go to Chronicles and it gives you several verses. We're just going to look at verses uh, 5 through 16. Notice what it says in verse 5. It says, Moreover, Amaziah gathered Judah together and set over them captains of thousands, captains of hundreds, according to their fathers' houses, throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above, which is what they would do when they're about ready to go to war. And he found them to be 300,000 men, choice men, able to go to war, who could handle spear and shield. And he also, notice this, verse 6, this is so crazy. He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver? Aren't 300 good enough? You got to hire, you got to pay them. You're going to pay them, you know, these 100,000 men from the tribe, you know, the, the kingdom up north. You're going to hire mercenaries to help you go against Edom? Isn't God and 300,000 good enough? Actually, isn't 300, like in Gideon's sake, plus God, a majority? Yeah, it proved to be pretty good. So, not really walking in faith here and, and, and taking and intermixing this, this line of Judah that should be much better than their northern neighbors who are all idolaters. And Judah was becoming not much better, to be honest with you. But notice, so he, he does all of this, and in verse 6, he hired 100,000 men from Israel. And, but, but a man of God, notice, and this is what I, I want you to see this. This is God's grace in action. A man of God came to Amaziah saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. For the Lord is not with Israel, meaning the northern tribes, not with any of the children of Ephraim. Whenever you see the children of Ephraim, it's always speaking of the northern ten tribes. Israel and Ephraim is all the northern kingdom. Okay. Judah is always in the south. But if you go, he tells him, be gone. Be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy. For God has power to help and to overthrow. And then Amaziah said to the man of God, but what shall we do about the hundred talents that I've given to these men? You know, I can't just give them the money and tell them to go home. And... and uh, and the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. And so Amaziah discharged those troops 
that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home, and therefore their anger was greatly aroused against Judah. And they returned home in great anger. And then Amaziah strengthened himself, and leading his people, he went to the Valley of Salt, and he killed 10,000 of the people of Seir, speaking of Edom, the Edomites. Also the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive, brought them to the top of the rock, and cast them down from the top of the rock, so that they were all dashed in pieces. But as for the soldiers of the army which Amaziah had discharged, so that they would not go with him into battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horan. They killed 3,000 in them and took much spoil. And now it was so after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomite. And can you see God trying to warn this man, a very stubborn man? Anybody stubborn in the room tonight? Very stubborn. He, or he, he pays these guys to, to come join them. God's like, don't, I don't want to, you, no, don't do that. Well, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, if you do it, go. <laughs> You're going to die. And so he's like, well, fine, I'm going to go do it. And so he's stubborn. He goes. And meanwhile, these 100,000 mercenaries, they're angry because now he didn't take back the money. Do you see now what he's done? He's made them indebted to him. That's why they're angry. When you earn something from somebody, you, 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 you do something and you get a wage for it. But when you give somebody some money and then you don't follow through with whatever you wanted them to do and they leave with the money, they feel in their sense, in their hearts, an indebtedness to you. And they're thinking, I'm not going to be indebted to them, to the, to the tribe, to the Judah and Benjamin. I'm not going to be indebted to them. The only reason I'm here is for the money. If it wasn't for the money, I'd have nothing to do with you. But now they feel indebted. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, that is why they're angry. And now it was so, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods. He bowed down before them, burned incense to them, and therefore the anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah, and he sent him a prophet again. Now see the grace of God again. I mean, can you see this? I mean, I want to make that very obvious, very plain. It is very obvious, isn't it? You're messing up. God sends a prophet. Why does he have to send a prophet? Because he's closed off his own ears. He's not listening to God, so God's got to tell somebody else to go speak to this guy. <laughs> Do you see that? And if God really didn't love him, if God didn't really care, he would have just smoked him right on the spot. Right? But does he do that? Does he deserve to have a prophet come and try and scare him away? Remember Balaam and the donkey? You know, the donkey is listening to the Lord. He can see the Lord. And, the, and Balaam, he just keeps whacking the donkey. And the donkey finally had to, what's up with you, guy? And then the fool has enough chutzpah to have a conversation with the donkey. Can you imagine the madness of that? You're so angry that things speaks to you and you're speaking back to it. That's when you know you've lost it. That's when you know that they need to come in with the straight jacket and take you away in the funny little wagon because you've really lost your marbles at that point. But notice, he goes and he takes their gods after defeating them, comes back and worships them. So God sends a man of God, again, a prophet, who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? And so it was, as he talked with him, that the king said to him, have we made you... And so... 
the king is getting frustrated with a prophet. This is the second time God's trying to get in his way from keeping him from doing foolish things. The king finally says to the prophet, Have we made you the king's counselor? Cease. Why should you be killed? Close your mouth or you're going to die. You've spoken to me twice. You do it again and your head's going to be on a stick. <laughs> okay? And, and, and this is just the attitude. And then the prophet ceased. But then one final little barb. I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and you have not heeded my voice. And God trying to step in, God trying to intervene. And notice how the Lord sent to Amaziah a prophet. This, folks, is grace. In the Old Testament, where there appears to be no grace, you know, people say, oh, there's no grace, it's only just death and judgment. Well, if you read close enough, and here it is, just tucked away in these verses, grace of God, the grace and the love of God. Because when Amaziah or any of us have shunned God, if we don't listen and are pig-headed, God will often send a prophet or someone to speak the truth to us. And hopefully we will listen. And God help us if we don't. God loves us enough to tell us the truth. And unfortunately, he spurned God's message through the prophet, and it would definitely cost him. So in, back in our text now in uh, 2 Kings 14, beginning in verse 8. So Amaziah... He sends messengers to Jehoash now. And so you have to, if you don't read Second Chronicles like we did, you'd miss on why he's going to go to war with them. Because while he was down there slaughtering the Edomites, these 100,000 men were going into, who belonged to Israel were raiding towns in Judah and killing people, about 3,000 of them. And so when he comes back from Edom and sets up these idols and the prophet gets on his case... Now he finds out what had happened, and now he's like, okay, now I'm going up north, and I'm going to take this guy on. So Amaziah sent messengers to Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel, saying, come and let us face one another battle, one another in battle. Let me just look back here. I think I... Uh, and we know why what precipitated this is because of the, uh, those hired mercenaries went and killed those people of Judah, 3,000. And so now he hears about it. And he comes back. And so Jehoash, verse 9, king of Israel sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying... And he gives them this little parable. It almost sounds very uh, like Samson. The thistle that was in the Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, Give your daughter to my son as wife. And a wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. So Jehoash was giving a parable and basically relating Amaziah to this little thistle, this little plant, versus Jehoash, who is related to as the cedar, the big, strong, bigger, and better. And he was. And he says, verse 10, You've indeed defeated Edom, Jehoash says to Amaziah. Yeah, you went down there and slaughtered them. And your heart has lifted you up. Glory in it. Have a party. Have a nice meal together. Drink and have a little fun because you've, of this little victory that you have. 
but glory in that and stay home. For why should you meddle with us and trouble yourself so that you fall? You and Judah with you. But Amaziah would not heed. Notice it doesn't say that he could not. He would not heed. Therefore, Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. So he and Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And notice that, it, again, it's a matter of the will. Amaziah was stubborn, and it's going to cost him. And... Um, Our will can be a dangerous thing like that if it's not submitted to God. That is why the model prayer, remember the model prayer that Jesus shared with us? What was it? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, my will be done. It's not what it says. Your kingdom come, your will be done. It's not that he could not, he would not. Amaziah would not heed It's not that he couldn't, he would not. It was an act of the will, and that's a dangerous thing. Didn't Jesus even say in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, Father, if it it, it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So if the Son of God is submitting himself to the will of the Father, I think it'd probably be a good idea that we do the same. What do you think? Yeah, it's good for us to submit our hearts to God, right? Our will needs to be broken. And when I came to Christ, God had to break my will. And by the way, he's still breaking me, just like he's doing you. He's breaking us like that, old, that Mustang that's running wild out in Wyoming. And you finally catch that Mustang, and it has to be broken. It has to be trained and tamed so that it can be ridden, that you can put a saddle on it, and that you can ride the horse. That takes time, and it is a rough mess if you have ever done that. I've never done that. But I've heard of people who do, and it's not an easy thing to break the will of the Mustang, the wild horse. And you and I, when we're born, we're like that Mustang. And God has to break our will. And happy is the man whose will is broken early. Instead of going obstinate and being your own thing and doing your own things. So Judah, verse 12, was defeated by Israel, and likely, rightly so. And every man fled to his tent. And then Joash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah. I, I think I've already read this. Uh, but he, he went to battle, and he captured him at Beth Shemesh. This place called Beth Shemesh is approximately 50 to 20 miles due west of Jerusalem. So right above the Dead Sea, if you're looking at a map, the Dead Sea is like this. And right near the top of the north part of that, if you go straight over, you'll run into Jerusalem. And if you go 10 or 15 miles even further west, you're going to run into this place called Beth Shemesh. And that's where this battle occurred. And, and it says that after he had done that, he captured Amaziah. He didn't kill him. Joash could have killed this Judean king. He didn't kill him. He took him captive. And then he goes back to Jerusalem and breaks down the wall Uh, specifically from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, about 400 cubits or 600 feet of the wall of Jerusalem. And this is the uh, wall that's on the north side. These two gates that are mentioned are on the north, uh, northwest and north side of the temple area itself with all of its gates around it. The north and the northwest corner of that is where um, he broke this uh, all down. And notice verse 14, he took all the gold, all the silver, the articles of gold found in the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king house, 
king's house, and the rest of the acts of Jehoash, which he did as might and everything, aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And so Jehoash, the king of Israel, didn't kill Amaziah. So verse 16, so Jehoash rested with his fathers, meaning he died, and was buried in Samaria, which was the capital of the northern tribe, the northern kingdom, with the kings of Israel. And notice, then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Don't you find it interesting that Jehoash called his son's name Jeroboam? We call this man Jeroboam II, because Jeroboam I was the one who started this whole thing. Remember when the kingdom split after Solomon? The northern tribe uh, went to Jeroboam and the southern tribe went to Rehoboam. That's when the monarchy split and now it became a divided kingdom. But that first king after Solomon was Jeroboam. And now a few hundred years later, this king Jehoash of Israel, knowing very well who Jeroboam was, he names his son Jeroboam. Historians call him Jeroboam too, just to differentiate him. It's, you know, they were about 137 years apart. The Jeroboam, who was the progenitor of that kingdom, to this Jeroboam. So verse 17, Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoiahaz, king of Israel. And now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the chronicles of the kings of Judah? Yes, actually they are. And we just read it just a few minutes ago in 2 Chronicles chapter 25. And so, notice, they formed a conspiracy, verse 19, against him. This sounds awfully like uh, his father, who they, they plotted against him and killed Amaziah's father. Now they're going to do the same thing to him. They formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem, and he fled to Lachish. But they sent after him to Lachish. They killed him there. And this Lachish is roughly 30 miles southwest of Jerusalem in the land of what you and I would call the land of the Philistines, more toward the Mediterranean, um, approximately 25 miles east of Gaza. So that's roughly the place that it is. And then they brought him on horses after they killed him, and they brought him, and he was buried in, at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah now took Azariah. Azariah, whose name is called, he's also known by another name, Uzziah. Does that ring a bell with anybody? Anybody read uh, Isaiah chapter 6? Uzziah. Check that out when you get a chance, Uzziah. But that's his name. But his real name was Azariah. And he was 16 years old and made, uh, was made king instead of his father Amaziah. Azariah, or Uzziah, reigned from 790 to 739, a total of 52 years. And he was actually um, co-regent with his father for about 23 of those years. And he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his father. Elath, or Elath, is... Uh, that place, you remember the Sinai Peninsula? There's like the, the Red Sea. If you're looking at a map, the Red Sea goes like this, and then you've got the Gulf of Suez going up on the left side, and then on the other side, the Gulf of Aqaba, and then you've got the Sinai Peninsula right there in the center. Well, this place is right at the very north end of the Gulf of Aqaba. It's called Elot. And back in um, 1 Kings 9, remember Solomon had made... Um, uh, 
chips there at the port in Elat, and he would use that to not only import goods from all over the world, but he would also use it as a place to export goods to other places of the world. And so now uh, this man, um, Azariah, or Uzziah, he restores that. And then it tells us in verse 23 now, In the fifteenth year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. (laughs) So this is Jeroboam too, reigning from 793 to 753, a total of 41 years. This was the longest reigning king of anybody in Israel in the northern ten tribes. He was the longest reigning king. And during his reign, Um, prophets uh, Jonah and Amos and Hosea would prophesy during this man's reign. That's one way to think about it. So when you read Jonah or you read Hosea and you read Amos, these men were all contemporary with this particular king. And notice what it says about him. Really great things. He was a great fellow. No, what does it say? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. With a name like Jeroboam, there's only one way to go and that's down He could have gone up, but his father named him Jeroboam, and he continued with his own ways and did evil. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. So now we know who the difference of the kings, right? Jeroboam of Nebat or Jeroboam II of, you know, uh, Jehoash. Spiritually, this man was a disaster, but one thing he did have going for him was his political and military might. That's one thing that he had for him. And God would nonetheless, even with his horrible, horrible idolatry, God would use this man, again, the grace of God, to restore to Israel the land that their enemies had taken. Now, did Jeroboam and the people of Israel deserve that? I don't know, did he? Did they deserve it? Did they deserve to be rescued for God? And and, and think about this. Even an ungodly man who reigned for a very long time, God was still going to use this man because there were strengths in him and he was going to allow him to recapture some of the land in Israel that Syria, Ben-Hadad, had taken away from Israel. And why is God going to use an ungodly man to do that, to restore Israel well, there was a covenant that God made, didn't he, to Abraham back in Genesis 15? It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And God made a promise to Abraham, to his descendant Isaac, and then to Jacob. And he reiterated each, the same promise to each of them in their own time. And he said, your people are going to be like the sand of the seashore. They're going to have all of this land. And God spells out the borders for them. I'm going to give all of this to you, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And so what is God doing here? He is keeping his promise to even a people who are governed by an ungodly man. God is going to still keep his promise to his people. That is a mind blower. Is that grace or not? That's grace. Unmerited favor. That's what grace is. It means when I I don't deserve it, and yet God gives it to me anyway. That's exactly what's happening here. 
He had every right to just smoke Jeroboam and all of them because they never recovered. They never recovered from their idolatry. But he's being faithful to his promise that he made to their ancestors. And God will not and cannot lie. He will not go back on his promise. When he makes a promise in the Bible, you can take it to the bank and put it in your security deposit box because it's safe. The promises of God are irrevocable. The promises of God. My promises, not so much. I can make a promise and break my promise, but God's promises will never, ever fail. And it may seem dark and dismal, and you're thinking, well, Lord, I thought you said the gates of hell would not prevail against the church, but look at outside, look what they're saying on the news. It's looking really bad. And God's going, oh, I know. Do you want to know what the first century church went through? You've got it made church in America, you've got it made compared to what I allowed them to go through. The horrible persecution that they went through, I was still with them. And guess what? The gates of hell did not prevail against them. Yes, many lost their lives to this demon-possessed man in Rome, Caesar. Yes, he put some of them to death. He chopped off, you know, Nero chopped, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul's head clean off. But the gates of hell did not prevail. That's something to chew on, isn't it? (laughs) Because whenever I stub my toe, (laughs) I thought you said the gates of hell would not prevail, and I got a hangnail now. You know, he's like, oh, Rob, you don't know. You You don't understand. Don't worry, in time you will understand. And I'm like, oh. So verse 25, he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath, which is in the north, to the Sea of Arabah, which is the Dead Sea, according to the word of the Lord God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah. Didn't I mention him as being a contemporary of Jeroboam? Him, along with Amos and Hosea. And evidently, which the Lord had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer. Now, you can search uh, Jonah and you won't find this prophecy. So uh, there's evidently no record in the scripture of this, but it did happen. So we just don't have that record and that's okay because God has a reason. For the Lord, verse 26, saw, here it is, notice the compassion and grace of God. He saw the affliction of Israel. He saw that it was very bitter. And whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. He did. He saved them, even though he didn't deserve even though they didn't deserve it, he saved them in his grace. He is so gracious. Can I, raise your hand if God's been gracious to you? Yeah. He's been so good to us, and he's been good to his people too, even when they could never deserve it. I mean, I could understand him being gracious with Judah, even in their fumbling and everything and their idolatry. I could see God, because of the promises he made to David in the Davidic covenant, I can see him going, oh man, you really blew it, that's okay. Just pretend like it didn't happen. You know, wink at him, you know, it's it's good. No. He blew the wheels off the cart and took them to Babylon. (laughs) That's what he did. He loved them, but he wasn't going to withdraw the chastening that was needed to get that out of them. 
And he does the same thing with you and I. Don't be afraid when God chastens you. You, you think, oh, God hates me. He doesn't love me. No, he, he loves you enough to not let you get away with it. Because if he continues to let you get away with it, you're going to burn yourself out. And you're going to die. He wants you to live. So when I'm messing up and I'm doing something in my life that I ought not to do, and it's going to destroy me, it's going to cause me to lose my family, lose my job, maybe even my health goes downhill because of wrong choices and sin issues, and God tries to get in the way to keep me from destroying myself, it's not because he wants to keep you from having fun. No, he wants you to live. And he will chasten you. And he knows exactly how to do it. He knows the right amount of pressure to put on you to make you go uncle to make you say uncle. He's done that with me. Has he done it to you too? He just, he's done something in your life and you're like, oh my, I sense God is doing something here. Oh Lord, thank you. What, you. what you just allowed to happen in my life, it really hurt. But I know you don't hate me. You're trying to be like, you're trying to get in my way. I'm gonna have to stumble over you to continue, and God gets in the way. Why? Because he loves. Why? Because he's gracious. Love that. Now, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, and how he captured uh, for Israel, from Damascus and Hamath, and what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? And we don't have those scriptures, do we? Not, not, not the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. We have the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah. That's what First and Second Chronicles is, but we don't know where those other books are. They were lost somewhere. But not really important because Judah is... Who comes from Judah? Jesus. We don't really need to worry about what happened in the history of Israel after the, at this point. It's about Judah because Christ is going to come from Judah. Fulfilling all the prophecies, going, excuse me, going all the way back to Genesis all throughout the scripture, fulfilling everything. It's all about Judah. It's all about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then the 12 sons, Judah being the lawgiver, and then going further on, now Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the book of redemption. It's all about him. So Jeroboam rested with his fathers, the king of Israel, and then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. So thank you for uh, your patience tonight. I went a little longer. But praise the Lord. I don't know about you, but I, I, I get so much out of, out of these, out of the history of this. Because I see so much of myself. I see so much of humanity all around me. And it just proves to me again that we are all the same. And left alone Apart from God, we are just rascals. We're just horrible. When people say to me, oh, you're inherently good, you were born, you know, you were inherently good, I'm like, oh my goodness, the Bible tells me that I, was, I wasn't born inherently good. As soon as I was old enough to pick up a knife, I was chasing somebody with it, you know? As soon as I learned how to crawl, I was stealing something from somebody and, you know, and you know, you've seen kids, you know, before they even, they've never seen their parents model this behavior, and now you get two little boys who they've never seen the mom and dad. You know, you understand what I'm saying in modeling? I'm going off here. Just hang on. We're almost done. 
But, you know, two parents, you know, you've never seen like a, a, a mother and a father in front of these little toddlers, you know, fighting over a lollipop. You know, it's mine, it's mine. And, and yet the kids, what do they do? It's because it's built inside. It's, it's called sin. It's in there. And you don't have to teach them. <laughs> it's already in there. They'll fight and they'll kick and they'll be selfish. And they've never seen it from anybody else, chances are. That's why it's good for us to lead a good example, right? So be encouraged, and, and as we read these things, uh, learn, uh, learn a lot from it, and, and see the grace of God, how loving he is. His truth, he, he's very truthful, and he chastens those whom he loves, and those who spurn his overtures of, of trying to get them back, you spurn, you spurn it long enough, and you'll reap from that and it's never good it's never good let's stand and pray Lord we thank you for the examples and the the truth of your word tonight Lord I pray that you get us uh, all home safely tonight Lord especially our brother out in Buffalo uh, in that area Lord and just encourage all of us tonight Lord just with the weather and and thank you for uh, loving us Lord Lord thank you for showing us and being so kind Lord, to us, and um, even when we have proven ourselves to be rascals, Lord, even as Christians, Lord, thank you for loving us with an everlasting love and never, Lord, wanting to crush us. Lord, you chasten us, but you don't crush us. There's a big difference because you're always trying to draw us back. And Lord, other people would just write us off. The world will write us off because of what we've done wrong. But Lord, you're always, you'll punish us. But you'll always do it with instruction in mind to bring us back to you. That's how good you are. And we exalt you. And we thank you for your goodness toward us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.